no one knows a disability better than the person going through it. You can study a disability. Doctors and nurses, they obviously have millions of patients and experiences with certain things, but you will never fully understand everything unless you go through it yourself. There's no better person to ask than the person going through it. And welcome to this In Conversation episode of Shameless with Sophie Delizio. If Sophie's name sounds familiar, you were probably first introduced to her story more than 16 years ago when a car crashed into Sophie's daycare center and trapped Sophie underneath. In that incident, Sophie suffered burns to more than 85% of her body. She lost both of her feet, a number of fingers, and an ear. We're sure every person listening to this can agree that that is too much trauma for one human to sustain in a lifetime. And yet, just a few years later, Sophie's life was threatened once again by a freak event. In 2006, Sophie was involved in a serious car accident where, after being thrown from her wheelchair, she obtained an acquired brain injury. And yet, in the face of so much adversity, Sophie Delizio is a sunshiny force to be reckoned with. Now on the cusp of her 20s, Sophie is a fighter who didn't just survive, but thrived despite everything that life threw at her. In this chat, we will retrace the two events that shaped Sophie into the incredible person she is today and explore how her parents and brother's love nurtured her in her darkest of moments. Here's Sophie. Sophie, welcome to Shameless In Conversation. We are so delighted to have you here. Thank you so much for having me. This is a big moment for both of us. I think out of all the episodes we've done, I might fangirl the most in this one, so I apologise. <laughs> oh, Sophie, okay. what are you reading, watching or listening to at the moment? Oh gosh, I'm currently picked up a book I've had for months that I've been wanting to read but just having a time called Sapiens. Um, about like the history of humankind and all that something that my friends have recommended for months and I've just never gotten around to reading and watching right now just a lot of movies I'm kind of in the movie phase right now it's kind of sick of binging tv shows because I did all of that in the midst of the lockdown so yeah now just going through different directors and kind of doing it in order of directors and whatnot and Ah, I listen to so many different podcasts that all over the place, my podcast app. So honestly, anything and whatever I can get my hands on, really. <laughs> Sapiens is an interesting one to pick up. I have a lot of respect for people who want to pick up Sapiens because it's one of those books I put in like the smart person pile. <laughs> <laughs> See, I thought that as well. I was so intimidated to pick it up. But then I realized, okay, it's not actually technical. It's easy wow. to read. Which I was really surprised about because I'm not that sciencey kind of person. Like, at all. Is it I'm about like, basically evolution? Yeah, it's about how basically there were like six different species, and now there's one, which is us, mm. and how we killed off the other species. And <laughs> yeah, essentially, it says like one part says we're the deadliest species to ever exist because we killed all the others somehow. No one knows how they did that. Right. Conversations like Mm. this make me think there is so much about the world I just simply do not know. (laughs) It is crazy. It is so scary. Like they don't even know how 
humankind got to Australia because of the treacherous land that they had to cross because they didn't have energy to last 24 hours a day of walking. It's so crazy. It creeps me out. And I'm like, wow, Australia, we're here. (laughs) This reminds me of the chat, like, when I think about it too long, if I think about outer space or if I think about aliens and the fact that, like, aliens have to exist. Like, there's no way Earth is the only planet with human life on it. If I think about it too much, I start to freak myself out and have, like, an existential crisis. And I feel like that's what I'm about to have now, (laughs) thinking about how people got to Australia. I completely agree. I was watching Gravity the other day, the movie, and I was just there, like, oh, my God, imagine getting lost in space. Like... (laughs) how scary would that be I'm just like I'm never going to be in space that's okay why am I freaking myself out (laughs) so if we when talking about your childhood in the past you've described Mm -hmm. yourself as a chatterbox this seems to be true talk to us about that side of your personality well literally since well before my accident I was that way I remember mum telling me multiple times how when I was out of my coma in my after my first accident, Molly, the person who I had my accident with, was in the bed next to me. And I had my feeding tube down my throat and all that. You know, obviously, you're not supposed to talk because it will move the tube around. And I used to get in trouble because I would talk to Molly all the time. <laughs> and the nurses would come and be like, Sophie, shut up. <laughs> very naughty. But yeah, I just, I don't know why. I think because... I just am a very sociable person and love a good chat. And when, especially being in hospital, all I could do was really talk, like growing up when I was little. So it's what I love to do. You touched on it then, the accident that happened when you were just a toddler. For those who aren't yeah. familiar, you were sleeping at a childcare centre when a car crashed through the wall and trapped you underneath. You were left with third degree burns to 85% of your body. You lost mm-hmm. both of your legs below the knee, which as you said in Ando's Brush with Fame is a really good thing that you still yeah. have your knees. That's really important for your Very mobility lucky. and ability to walk. You mm-hmm. lost an ear and you lost, is it all of the fingers on one of your hands? Basically, they like adapted mm-hmm. like this quarter of a finger from, mm-hmm. I think it's from a bone from my leg, which oh, wow. is really random. I, it's fun party too. You spent more than six months in hospital recovering from all of that, mm-hmm. six and a half months. What do your parents yeah. tell you about that time? I mean, is it something that you guys even talk about anymore? Is it something that you feel like happened so long ago and was so huge that it's not really a topic of conversation as an adult? I think when it comes to discussing that time with my family and I, so much as it has been discussed in media, in interviews, and and I've been there hearing it. So there's never been that need for conversation around it. And if I did have a question, they'd tell me. But I've grown up knowing basic things. And I obviously don't know certain details that of things they went through and I went through, but I know what I need to know and how to deal with my care now. I know it was definitely difficult, but from what I know of their time, it's more surrounded the difficulty with managing my brother when he was four at the time. So that's what was their main focus in telling me about is the like how he was treated and what he had to do and all that and his story of it all. I guess one of the weirdest aspects of this, Sophie, and I imagine it would have been really strange for your parents, is this idea that this really terrible thing happened to you and the whole country knows who you are and who your family are because of it. Do your parents ever speak about what that was like, you know, being recognised and you being recognised? Was there a point when you were a young child where you you kind of understood that people you'd never met knew who you were? It's weird. I don't remember a time without that happening. Like it's 
because before my accident or before both my accidents it's all a blur to me because I had such high dosages of medication and so much trauma that my brain's just blocked that out so all I can remember is my disability my like this is my life and my parents have discussed with me the choice they made talking to people past burn survivors and amputees and whatnot and they were telling my parents when I had my accident how much they suffered because people didn't know in terms of people would come up and stare more and not respecting their disability as much because it was so unknown to them and I think definitely there are very few cases like mine that have been so publicized with in regards to burns because really before what was 2003 when it happened before that Mm. it wasn't a very recognized thing like everyone knew burns have that existed and whatnot but there was no real publicized cases it was just after the Boston bombings so that was the real first breakout of meteorized burns survivors Mm. so they did a lot of research and spoke to a lot of people and decided I think my mum my mum's words were you could either have people come up to you and express love and gratitude or just pure curiosity and I'm fine with people asking what happened and questioning and whatnot but now when people come up it's like oh I know who you are thank you mm-hmm. for helping me or you inspired me or you did this so now it's this newfound positivity that came from my story being known and I'm totally fine with that. (laughs) I mean, I find it so interesting that so much of this happened to you as a child because your story is so remarkable. It's almost unbelievable. But in 2006, after that really traumatic incident in 2003, disaster did strike for you a second Mm -hmm. time. You were hit by a car and thrown 18 metres from your wheelchair at a pedestrian crossing. You suffered a heart attack, a broken jaw, a broken shoulder, an acquired brain injury, numerous rib factors and a tear to your left lung. You spent a whole month extra in hospital. And I mean, none of this incorporates the time that then you spend in hospital subsequently. That was living Mm -hmm. in hospital for a full month. Do you have any memories of that time? Do you remember? I know you would have been so young. You would have been, what, six or five. Do you remember thinking, (laughs) how can all this tragedy happen to me? How can this be my life? The thing with my memories is I don't know what I kind of made up or what I've been told and then made up in my mind. I really don't know what my first memory is. Like I have bits and pieces. I can remember things from hospital, like recovering. There's this room in hospital that I can't go into because I just remember so much trauma from that room. It was a dressing change room and it was where I'd have a bath. And I just remember like open wounds in a bath was never fun. But I have no idea if that was from my first accident or when I was eight that I had that. So it's all kind of blurred in my mind. Even my second accident, I have no memory of and all of that, which I think is partially to do with my brain damage as well. And just your natural body defences, blocking that out, which is one one of the amazing things about your body is that it'll protect you from certain things like that. But yeah, it's weird. Everyone tells me all these stories about the time and I've heard the story a million times, but for me, it's just a story. It's just, yeah, that happened. That's it for me. Is there any process you need to go through as you get older when you slowly start to come to terms with what happened? Because as you say, like you have such few memories of this time, but surely as you grow older and kind of grow more into yourself, is there any kind of anger you ever experience or confusion or any sense of like, why me and how does that happen twice? Yeah, I think 
it's weird for me because I, I went through phases of my life where I wish I did remember and I wish I knew I wish I didn't have to rely on other people telling me the story and what happened because it, it is my story but I'm not the one to tell it because it's already either been told or it's been told to me so I never really had anger about it because that's life it wasn't no one was out to get me or anything like that it was just things happened and I'm grateful that it happened to me not a family that couldn't have cared for a child with such intense disabilities or didn't have certain things like thankfully when the second accident hit we were still going to hospital every few weeks from my first accident so we had this amazing team built up so as soon as my second accident happened they all swooped in and if it happened to a family who had no experience in the medical field like when I had my first accident it could have been so much different for them and thankfully we already had the charity and we built up this such a strong support network for the hospitals and for families in the hospitals through the Day of Difference Foundation it just happened to someone whose parents were strong enough to deal with it because I know my friends parents have told me that your parents are amazing I know I couldn't have dealt with it the way they did so I'm just grateful that it happened to someone like my family yeah we want to talk about your medical team and your family in a moment but before we get there I think when I watched your interview with Arne Doe what really stuck out to me was just how empathetic and caringly you spoke about the men whose cars crashed into you and I think it took me by surprise because I think a lot of people who have had their lives turned upside down in the way that you had so young would hold a level of resentment. And it was so fleeting, it was so short, but when you gave both stories, you really quickly qualified that the first man had a seizure, the second man was blinded by the sunshine or the sunlight and mm. didn't see you crossing. I want to know, did you ever have contact with these men or is it just a level of empathy and generosity that you have towards them that has always mm. been there? We never had contact with either of them post the accident. I think Dad one day ran into someone who knew the guy from the second accident three years ago or something, but we've never felt a need to contact them or anything. My family raised me not to have anger and not to express mm. anger against someone because it's a wasted emotion. Because like mm. I, I feel frustrated about certain things, but I... I just don't like anger. I don't like that emotion. I don't like how it makes people feel and all of that. And I just think anger brings more negativity than it does positivity in the world. So I just accepted it. It's It wasn't their fault. It wasn't their doing. I feel sorry for them that obviously they experienced trauma for it, from it as well because I don't know who they are. I've never met them. I have no association with them. I can't help but feel bad for them and just hope they're okay I mean they were quite well the first one was a lot older so I don't know what his health is like now or if he's still here but whatever happened to them hope they're good Sophie you've mentioned a couple of times in the last few minutes how incredible your parents are and your family is and your parents genuinely do seem like the most incredible people like just from all of the media I've consumed about them and I've heard you say that some of your most special and emotional moments with them that you kind of treasure or remember the most happened before you were going into certain surgeries, many surgeries that you've undergone. And I want to ask you about those those little moments before surgery. Why do they stick out in your mind so much? Even to this day, I experience severe anxiety and uh, panic and disorder and whatnot 
regarding hospitals and not I can enter a hospital I love everyone in my hospitals and like especially Westmead Children's Hospital I, I know everyone I like I don't go there anymore but it was I know it sounds horrible to say but it was my second home and I was okay with that the doctors warned my mum or my parents when I first saw my accident like don't make this your second home you don't want mm. it to be but I'm okay that it is I'm not there half the year but I might be there for a month in a year and I'm okay with that that's just how it is I'm just lucky that everyone's so nice some days it would take me like an hour before surgery to get a gas mask on because for me the gas was terrifying and before that I would have something called wobbly medicine which was no idea what the actual medical term of the medicine <laughs> is but it was white liquid and I can't drink lemonade or eat clear gummy bears or white jelly beans because of it wow. like it was yeah it I had no idea what it is but it was a horrible and probably I just hated the feeling like that complete loss of senses because it feels like everything's fuzzy and everything gets really loud like the simplest of things sound so loud in your head and for me that was just petrifying as a child even to this day like I had surgery a few months ago and I still freaked out like hated mm. uh, I'm just lucky now that I have the anesthetists know me better and I've, they've been around a while so they know how to do it better <laughs> but as a kid I would scream I would cry I would refuse to have it because to me I didn't realize the importance of the surgeries so mum and dad would try and comfort me as much as I could through these little things like mum saying go to your happy place and dad saying like making me say I'm a big strong girl like those little things and then we had this little we still have it a little pouch with a photo of me before my accident a cross and some few little like family knickknacks and we tie it to the end of my bed before I go into surgery so just little things like that they tried to make me feel more comfortable and as a kid I still freaked out but now I'm like oh that was sweet I appreciate that looking back now it helped but at the time I didn't realize it as much <laughs> Sophie it's interesting because you are very widely recognized across the country but so is your mum and your dad what makes your parents so incredibly special? Because whenever I have seen them on TV or doing interviews about raising money for their charity, it just strikes me how remarkable your mum and dad are. Can you speak mm. to that? What makes your parents the way they are? I think it's a, all you know, to their parents themselves. Like my dad's parents travelled all the way from Malta with two kids on a boat to get here. What? Well, it would have been like almost 70 years ago now and like just after the wars Malta was the most bombed city during World War II so they were went through so much hardship then that they raised my dad to understand that and my mum's side my grandpa his brother was a World War II prisoner from the New Zealand side and my grandpa like he went with the New Zealand army to clean up Hiroshima and then my grandma, you know, she was from South Africa and travelled all around with my grandpa to try and raise her family. And so, you know, both of my sides of my grandparents have taught my parents so much about hardship of life and getting through difficult times. And even my mum's parents both lost their dad when they were teenagers. So they know how to work, striving for themselves, not having mm. anyone else, you know, alien on the side. And I think it's just, yeah, life experience. My parents are just 
lucky enough to have the most amazing parents themselves to teach them that it honestly goes on like it's owed to my grandparents parents and whatnot like each generation has inspired the next my grandparents inspire me and still so all for them generation after generation of very good people it seems which is um, yeah (laughs) way to put it Sophie I think someone who does get forgotten a little bit in these conversations and you did mention him before as your older brother I mean, I can't imagine how much time he must have spent in those hospitals with you and in waiting rooms with you by your Mm. side while you received treatment and care. How was that dynamic growing up? There was always this level of protectiveness Mitchell had over me. Even when before my accident, like if I fell over, he was, you know, the protective big brother and would run over and help me up. Once the accident happened, he would want to push the wheelchair. And if anyone was caught staring, he'd death stare them back to like protect me and he was so careful around me as well like he didn't want anything to happen to me and he said to my parents when I first lost my legs don't worry mum and dad Sophie's legs will grow back like a lizard's tail does so he always (laughs) wanted to he was so aware of the feelings in the room that he just wanted to be to everyone's aid and then growing up after the accidents it just became a normally normal sibling relationship. He was still protective and he would still do the death staring thing if people stared at me, but then we started to we got into our early teenage years and we started to be Yeah. And now we're just at a mutual place in our lives where we respect one another, we annoy one <laughs> another, we let each other be. <laughs> Coming up after the break, why Sophie wants to take on the world. But first, a word from today's sponsor. Your family has raised millions and millions of dollars for the charity they created after the day of your first accident, which is called, the charity is called Day of Difference. Can you talk to us about your family's purpose to be that positive force in the world? I think they saw how much hospitals and families needed during our experience the first time in hospital that they wanted to do everything in their power to do that. Like even from all the wonderful gifts we received when I first had my accident, we didn't have a use for them, but we wanted we didn't want the gift to go to waste, so we would donate it someone to someone who did need it. So we never wanted anything to go to waste, and we had this media presence and we didn't want it to just sit there we wanted to use it to change people and help people and they definitely saw a lack of support for families especially in sibling relationships and how the siblings always get sidelined which is the reality of people with disabilities or illnesses and all that it's always going to happen no matter how much support there is it's a hard thing for a sibling to go through so they just wanted to make sure that it could be as good as it can, as best it can be for the next people who it happens to and the families after that. How do you feel about the many doctors and the many nurses and surgeons who saved you and worked very, very closely with you, I imagine, for years? Yeah, well, my surgeon from my first accident is still my surgeon today. We have been by each other's sides for 17 years coming up. So, yeah, it's amazing. Most of the people who have worked alongside me, we're still in contact with. Now that I'm out of children's, they've passed me on to people they've recommended or whatnot. For example, we had my electric wheelchair that I no longer need. So we just contacted one of the physios from my, the children's hospital and we were just like, hey, we got this. And so we gave it to her. So sort of things that we build up such a strong connection with them that 
but they'll always be in our lives to some extent, even from the canteen staff who whenever we go in there, they'll ask about Mitchell and about how we're all doing. And we've built such a strong connection that it's not something you will just disappear, which is very beautiful. But the people, they've, they saved me, the staff, the medical staff, even, yeah, the canteen staff, they entertained Mitchell for hours. They they kept it up with such a positivity around us when we were really little that I remember like walking in and always getting a milkshake from them and things like that. It's all thanks to them. It could not have been possible without them. They didn't give up for a second and they just continued to work their hardest and especially my doctor, Dr. Peter, it's all his magic. (laughs) (laughs) You must have a pretty huge level of respect for science and medicine now. Definitely. I think I went through a phase where I wanted to go into the medical field and then I realized no, <laughs> I've <laughs> done to that much of that in my life. I'll just deal with my own medical care. <laughs> but yeah, even like some of my closest family friends are nurses and some of my best friends are going into nursing. So I'm always surrounded by it in some aspect. Mm-hmm. But gosh, congratulations to everyone who's in that medical field. I could never do it. I like do the smallest amount each day and I'm just like, they incredible. <laughs> especially at the moment too. Especially. Definitely. Talk to us about life as a teenager because, I mean, entering those teenage years is kind of confusing for everyone, let alone when you have a lot of other stuff to deal with. Was there anything kind of unique to your experience going into those teenage years that you can remember that you felt like, God, this is really, things are really starting to get hard now? I always struggled with academics to an extent because of my brain damage. And I was also born right-handed and I lost my right hand. So I had to teach myself how to write left-handed but my brain still thinks I'm right-handed so I can't hold a pen correctly for example so I get severe bruising on my thumb from the way I hold my pen so growing up since year four I'd say I have always been on the computer like I've always used typing as my way of writing I can still write and do often but in schooling it was always on a computer for me so there were always things like that I've had to deal with and so I went to three different high schools, one primary school and then one, three high schools. And from each school, I treated my disabilities very differently. So my first school, I never wore my prosthetics. I was always on my knees. Like I had liners that would go on them and I'd like walk around my knees everywhere in my electric wheelchair. So it was always that I would never, I hated wearing my prosthetics during the ages 12 and 14, I think it was. was I was there for two and a half years. Then I moved to my next school. I would only wear a prosthetics. I would never touch my wheelchair at all. It wasn't even at school. I hated it. And I wore them, my prosthetics, too much to the point where I was almost going to go for emergency surgery because I created such bad wounds and I didn't care for them because I was never used to that intensity. My legs Mm. weren't used to that. And then I moved schools again in year 11 and 12 to a senior school. By then I'd grasped the expectation I have to have on myself to care for myself and all that. So I'd have a sur- if I had a surgery, I'd actually use my wheelchair. I still might wear my prosthetics every day, but I might not be walking in them. I'd be sitting in my wheelchair, but still wearing them as a confidence boost. So if I did need to walk, I could. It gave me that mm-hmm. still gave me that freedom. So it's weird how each school I've kind of been through a different spot in my life with my Mm. disability and learning to accept that my first school I had a teacher's aide with me for every class who would you know take notes for me if I couldn't type or write 
and I had a special chair because I had scoliosis to fix my spine and yeah it was just all very different parts of my life. Do you think the changing relationship with your prosthetics and your wheelchair over that time had to do with your I guess changing relationship with your own disabilities like at some time you wanted to play it down at sometimes you wanted to kind of accept it and lean into it and accept all the help was it like that as a teenager that you didn't know how to kind of identify with your own body at times definitely definitely and I think I used moving schools for the first time after my first high school as a way of creating my own identity because I felt during the first two and a half years of schooling I was so just accustomed to my nurses at home who would do my dressings and all my medical care so I never really needed to learn how to do it myself so I then used moving schools as no I want to make something of myself I want to teach myself how to take care of my needs so I definitely use it as a change in my life to accept my disability more and to grow as much independence as I want Definitely looking back as how I was in year seven, eight or nine, I would not like that person today. Not that I don't like being in my wheelchair, but I love the freedom. I wouldn't be able to drive. Mm. I wasn't wearing my prosthetics as much. And I just learned independence. And I think Mm. when you're growing up, like when you're 12, you don't know what independence really is. Well, when I was growing up, I don't, no one really knew. Now 12 year olds, I don't know why, but they seem so different. (laughs) (laughs) You make a good point. Yeah, it's kind of scary, but yeah, I think it was just growing up really and just learning to accept who I am a bit more. One thing I love about you is I think you really push back on this ridiculous idea that those with a disability can't achieve what anyone else can achieve. This is a bit of an odd question, but if someone is listening to this who has someone in their life who has a disability and perhaps underestimates what they can achieve, what would you say to that person? Don't underestimate it. Talk to them because no one knows a disability better than the person going through it. You can study a disability. Doctors and nurses, they obviously have millions of patients and experiences with certain things, but you will never fully understand everything unless you go through it yourself. There's no better person to ask than the person going through it. So don't underestimate anyone because you could be missing out on so many opportunities or so much good in the world from that. Like they could change the world. But if they, mm. people underestimate them, you know, you can dull someone's sparkle. So open up to them. I'm sure, I know from my experience, I'd much rather people ask me questions than just keep on thinking about them themselves and wonder. Like I don't mind if people ask me what the pain feels like or what it's like or whatever. Because, you know, I want to educate people. The most important thing is sharing your story, no matter who you are, what you've been through, for people to know for the future, for people to tell their grandkids how to deal with situation or just to educate the world. Even if it starts with one person, you're educating the world eventually. How do you nurture your identity outside of these accidents? Because it just, it must be hard growing up when so many people know you for the worst things that have ever happened to you. Yeah, I think the thing is, those accidents like made me who I am. I've been asked, do you wish it didn't happen and whatnot, but every aspect of my life, how it is now, is because of it. The mm. people I know, the friends I have, the schools I went to, even certain family friends, a friend of mine who's practically like a sister to me, she was my carer for a few years we wouldn't have gotten so close. Like we were always in each other's lives since the day I was born, but we never would have gone, come so close if it wasn't for her being my carer and us spending so much time together when I was younger. 
So I have my own identity, but it's shaped around that. And it always will be. And I'm completely fine with that because I love where I am in my life. I love the people in my life and everything around me I'm just grateful for. So I'm okay with it being because of the disability and all of that. Mm -hmm. I just don't focus on my life with a disability. I focus on my life and then the disability is a part of it. That is the perfect segue into our next question because you have skydived. You go to the gym (laughs) five times a week in pre-COVID times, that is. You even moved to London at the age of 18. I feel like moving overseas by yourself is massive and colossal and huge (laughs) at the best of times, let alone doing it at 18 and doing it as someone who has lived through all the things that you have lived through. It seems like, and I hate to psychoanalyze you to you, but it seems like you just adore and crave freedom and the feeling of freedom and the liberty that that gives you. One. Why is it that you love freedom so much? I think it it's, goes back to how I was in the, my high schools, how I wasn't, when I was went to my first class, but I wasn't happy with who I was and I suffered a lot of mental health illnesses because of that. And as I've grown up and as I've accepted it more, I realize there's so much more out there that I can do. And my parents have always told me not to let my disability define me, not to let it, it to be a part of me, but not be me. And when I first told them I'm moving to England, I wouldn't say, can I, I didn't ask, can I move? I just said, I'm doing it. And I'm very, I've always been stubborn as well. So I'm not going to take no for an answer. And they always said to themselves, would we let her do this if she didn't have the accident? Like my parents never wanted to say no just because of my accident. For example, with skydiving, all the skydiving places on the east coast of Australia said no because of the high winds and the chance of a running landing, not a slide landing. But as soon as we went to New Zealand, we asked, and in Queenstown, they're like, yeah, sure, because it's all protected by trees and hills. So you're pretty much guaranteed a slide landing. So some of those things, like, we might have been shut down a few times, but we're going to keep on trying because there's no reason why I can't live as normal of a life as possible. Even though I have all these disabilities, I still wear a form of legs. might not be completely natural, but there's still something. I can still walk and do all of that. So I drive a car pretty much normally, or the only thing I have is a little steering knob on my wheel. I have pedals and accelerators absolutely normal so freedom is wonderful (laughs) and I just moving to London as well was just the tip of the iceberg for that I just wanted to prove to myself that I could live ultimate freedom and do whatever I wanted with no one around. Where do you go to find joy the most? I think in times like these I'm a bit more obsessed with asking people about joy because the times (laughs) just feel so uncertain I guess. What brings Mm. you the most happiness and where do you find yourself finding the most joy? It definitely with the people in my lives it's always been my friends, my family, my loved ones have been my safe haven. And I go to them in times of hardship. Like each school I've been to, I've created such close friendships and connections with people that are still so close to me to this day. And as I've grown older, I've appreciated that more. And definitely that aspect of my life will never change. It comes to me being such a sociable person, those my best friends, I like, don't have a million best friends, but the three best friends in my life I will hold on to and just know that I'm there for them and they're there for me. And whether that's even just we would go for a night drive and get sushi and eat it in the car or just hanging at my house and watching a movie or doing whatever, whether it's the most adventurous thing or the most 
relaxing thing just having their presence there has always been meant so much to me all my joy comes from them that is so beautiful you are still so young and yet it seems like mm-hmm. you have such a great grip on the kind of human that you want to be in this world do you know what you want your 20s in particular to look like oh gosh I don't even know what my next week one needs to look like, <laughs> like I'm just taken as it comes I think this year because of COVID and so many life changes for me my idea of my future has shifted I was never really sure what I wanted past university and that was always something like oh well, I'll figure it out eventually and then something so colossal happened and I had to leave England where I thought I'd be for years and come back to mm. Australia and I've had this realization that actually I want to stay in Australia for a bit more so I'm deferring uni in the UK and I'm going to focus on staying here and being with my loved ones and just spending time here and figuring out what I want my life to be in Australia instead of what I thought was England because I got what I wanted from England and that was finding out if I can do it by myself. I know roughly what I want my career to be but I'm trying to see how that would actually play out. <laughs> I have like a 10-year plan but like no idea in between. Just have goals. <laughs> <laughs> I mean I'm impressed with that anyway. So you, <laughs> what is your relationship with the term or being called an inspiration? Because I imagine a lot of people listen to your story and kind of have that knee-jerk reaction of like oh my goodness how inspirational is she? Do you like people calling you that? I'm okay with people using the word. I personally don't like the word. As in, I don't use the word. I don't care if people call me that. That is completely their decision to use whatever words they desire. Each person defines a word differently. Each person has yeah. a different idea of it. For me personally, I find inspiration as someone's got to do something. Someone's got to change something in you or in the world to inspire you. It's something that you want to achieve your goals even more because of them. So for me, it's not some celebrity figure or whatever. It's the people around me that inspire me. My grandparents, my parents inspire me. I think having someone you actually know, like personally know to inspire you is so beautiful because you see how they really did it. It's not this big mystery. It's you just literally just follow them, look at their every day as a normal person, it's whatever. But if people want to call me that, sure, I'm okay with that. It's their choice. I just personally (laughs) don't use it. (laughs) (laughs) What about your legacy? You have lived a pretty remarkable life so far. I know it sounds morbid, but if you were to leave a legacy one day, what would you want that legacy to be? I think that's one of my favorite questions I've been asked because I'm obsessed with Hamilton and that's like the (laughs) message of Hamilton It is to create as much change as I can. No idea what specifically I want my career to be, but all I know is I want to help people and I want to change people's lives in the way people have changed mine. So I want to work towards that and I just, all I care about is leaving a mark on people, making sure that I've helped people and I've done enough to change the world for future generations. This may well lead into our last question, but that was such a beautiful answer I want to extend on that because our last question is always the same and it is what is success to you with all of this in mind? Happiness. Success doesn't mean money or where you live or what you do as a career. It just means creating the best life around you with your friends, your family, your loved ones, your partner, whoever, just making sure that you have the best people around you, you're living as happy of a life as you can because life is always going to be hard. It's always going to be 
there's always going to be difficulties and hurdles to jump through and whatnot. Making sure when those hurdles do come around, you've got the best support system around you and success is just being that for someone else as well. Not just having that for you, but making sure you're there for them. Or for me, all happiness, joy, success, all of that comes from your support network. A massive community or just your best friends. Sophie, thank you so much for making the time for us. We are such huge fans of yours. We think you are just incredible. So thank you very, very much. No, thank you so much for having me. I had a blast. And you're so bloody wise. (laughs) (laughs) No idea. (laughs) Thank you so much for listening to this episode with the remarkable Sophie Delizio. For more from Sophie, please do follow her on Instagram. She's at Soph, S-O-P-H dot Delizio, D-E-L-E-Z-I-O. If you like this episode, I also recommend our chat with skydiving accident survivor Emma Carey. We'll pop the link to that one in our show notes, or you can scroll through our back catalogue of all our In Convo apps at shamelessthepodcast.com. We have done almost 100 interviews with the brightest personalities in Australia over the last couple of years, and you are sure to find something that tickles your fancy. As for us, the best way to support Shameless is by clicking that big follow button on Spotify or share a screenshot of you listening to this on Spotify or take a photo of wherever you listen today and pop us up on your Instagram stories. That is such a great way that we find new listeners every single week. That is all from us, guys. Thank you so much for listening. We will be back in your ears on Monday. Hello guys, Mish here. I am the co-founder of Shameless Media. Thank you so much for giving us your ears and your mind and your time. We're so grateful. If you enjoy the stuff that we produce, may I recommend our brand new podcast, Style-ish. Style-ish, if you want to say it quickly. Style-ish, if you want to take the long way through. It is our podcast for all things fashion, brand, business, and beauty. If that is in your wheelhouse. If you care about style content, you will love this show. It is, of course, more than just a show as well. It is a newsletter. It is an Instagram feed. It is a TikTok account. There is so much good stuff going out on Stylish every single day starting now. So in your favorite app, search for Style-ish. Give it a listen. Give it a follow. We are an independent media company and we would be so, so grateful for all your support. That's all for me, guys. Check out Stylish and have a good one.